Welcome to the Life Changing Principles Podcast, where we take a new principle every week and explore how it changes our lives. I'm Leanne Hunt, ready to jump into today's principle. Today we're talking about naming the emotion. And the principle for today is actually kind of a collection of principles around this skill of naming the emotion. Naming the emotion is a skill we use when someone else is upset. And it's kind of like a tiny superpower because when you can name the emotion of someone else who's upset, the emotion dies down in that other person. It lessens, it calms. And so naming the emotion actually tames the emotion. The other thing that naming the emotion does when you use this skill is that it builds trust in the relationship and in the conversation. So the principles that we're going to find underneath why this skill works are actually found in research. Let's explore some research based principles underneath naming the emotion to quiet the emotion. But before we get to the principles, let's talk about what naming the emotion actually is. It's exactly how it sounds. Let's say you're in the conversation and you notice that someone else is upset. In class today, we use the example of a seven-year-old who's upset because they're the one who always gets in trouble instead of their five-year-old little brother. And they were caught taking a car away from him. He was just trying to teach him how to share. And when he was scolded for taking the car away, he said, you never take my side. You never listen to me. It's always my fault. I'm always the one in trouble. Bobby never gets in trouble. You like Bobby more than me. You don't even like me. There's a lot of things we could do with a comment like that. We could reply that we do. We could reassure him. We could get upset with him for talking to us like that. There's all kinds of responses. But what we want to do is we want to name the emotion. What might this kid be feeling? So it sounds like you're feeling unfairly treated. Yeah, I am feeling unfairly treated. I mean, I always have to share and Bobby never has to share. And so I just was trying to teach him. I'm trying to do something good here. And all I ever do is get in trouble. It sounds like you're surprised that you're getting in trouble when you were really just trying to do something good. Yeah, I'm always trying to do something good. That's all I ever try to do is the right thing. And it's just, it's just too hard. It doesn't matter what I do. I still just always get in trouble. It sounds like you're feeling really pressured to do the right thing all the time and kind of discouraged about getting in trouble a lot. It seems like you're also kind of feeling a little proud of yourself for trying so hard to do the right thing and to be good. It sounds like you're really making a lot of effort there. Yeah, that's it. I am trying to be good and I don't want to keep getting in trouble for it. At this point, the boy is calmer and now you can work out whatever solutions you want to work out together. So let's dive into the principles that we find in the research. So the first piece of research that I want to bring up isn't actually an experiment. It's more like an overview of what reflective listening actually is and how it can be useful. So in a psychological encyclopedia, the entry on reflective listening reminds us that there's a point to it. There's a reason that we do it. It says that reflective listening changes a person's feelings and ideas in a problem solving, insight producing, tension releasing, responsibility building, conflict reducing way. I don't know what else you would want from a conversation, but to do all of those things. And reflective listening is meant to produce that kind of a change. 
It's interesting and a little bit ironic then that reflective listening requires you to not try to push for change, to just allow what is, and then allowing what is naturally causes the person themselves to want to move toward change. The principle that I would pull from that definition of reflective listening is that reflective listening produces results. It feels unintuitive, but creating space and accepting what someone says and where they are and naming their emotion and just being with them produces motivation for that person to change on their own. The next bit of research is an experiment that studied what it feels like to be on the receiving end of listening and to feel understood or on the alternative to not feel understood. And so what they did was they took some individuals and put them in an MRI machine so that they could watch their brain and scan their brain as they induced the feeling of being understood in one group and then induced the feeling of being not understood in another group. Here's what they found. When you feel understood, the reward and social connection parts of your brain activate. When you don't feel understood, an entirely different part or region of your brain activates. There's actually three things that they notice. One was the part of your brain that's associated with negative emotion. The part of your brain that's associated with social pain lights up. And then also the part where you're thinking about other people who are dissimilar from you. So you're not feeling connected. You're thinking about people who are different from you. That part of your brain lights up if you're not feeling understood. So feeling understood actually changes your brain. It feels good to feel understood. And it enhances connection to feel understood. The next principle is a really important one. It comes from research by Matthew Lieberman at UCLA. And he talks about naming the emotion quiets the emotion. That's his principle. Sometimes they nickname it as name it to tame it. So the principle again is naming the emotion quiets the emotion. I'd like to walk you through this research because I find it so interesting. First, what they did is they sat people in front of a screen with some buttons and gave them what they call a go, no go test, where they told them, for example, to tap only when they saw odd numbers and then not tap when they see an even number. Then they showed them a bunch of rhythmically odd numbers so that you kind of got used to tapping. And when they showed them an even number and they paused, there was a part of their brain that lit up that they've just nicknamed the control center. They actually also call it the breaking system in the brain. So the next experiment they did was the same thing where they asked people to tap or not tap on some faces. They showed them faces and they asked them to tap or not tap if they were men or women. And so some of the faces as a second layer to this experiment were emotional faces. And when an emotional face showed up, the brain's amygdala or one of the negative emotion areas lit up without the person really even being aware of it. So they would see this emotional face, their brain would react to the emotion, but they were busy just doing the go, no go. Is this a man or a woman thing? So it kind of happened behind the scenes. Another thing that was interesting that they noticed is when they were on a no-go status, like they were like, oh, that's a woman, don't click, and they stopped and their control center lit up, it also calmed down the emotional center, even though the face was emotional. So that was an interesting find. Now here's where it gets really interesting. 
You know how parents tell preschoolers to use your words? That's really actually good advice. Here's what they found. They showed people faces and they asked them to choose a gender appropriate name. Like, you know, is this a boy's name or a girl's name and just match it to the face. And when they did that, there was no really control center lighting up because there was no go, no go situation. But whenever the face was emotional, again, of course, the emotional amygdala would light up. Then they tried it with something else. They asked them to choose an emotion word to label the emotion that they were seeing. When they had to choose an emotion word and label the emotion or name the emotion, every time the control center of the brain lit up and the emotion or the amygdala region tamed down. And so when you name an emotion, literally in your brain, the emotion calms itself. The emotion center of the brain calms and the control center lights up and becomes active. Naming the emotion literally tames it. It's amazing. The last piece of research that I wanted to add that builds to this idea that it's really important to learn how to name emotions in conversation is the idea of emotional granularity. Emotional granularity is having a wider vocabulary of emotion words to use in a situation. Instead of just jumping to the same old, I'm frustrated, I'm stressed, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm happy. You actually take a minute and get curious and say, what am I actually feeling? And the better you can identify that, the higher your emotional granularity is. And what they've found in research is that if you have a higher emotional granularity and you can get more specific about what you're actually feeling, that you're better able to pause and not react automatically. So you're less reactionary and you end up having a wider variety of coping options to choose from. So you use less reactive coping mechanisms, which makes your life go better. So again, finding a wider emotional vocabulary is going to help you name that emotion better and be more accurate with it, which is just going to help calm it down even more. There's one more really interesting piece of research that I found around emotional granularity. So this was done by a guy named Nook and some other researchers at Harvard. Here's what they found. They tested a range of ages to see who was better at emotional granularity. And if it was something that you just learned slowly over your lifetime. So they tested people from six to, I think it was like 26 and they had this wide range of individuals. What they found is that at six years old, kids are really good with differentiating their emotions and knowing which is which and labeling them. And so they're pretty high in emotional granularity already. Then as they get to be adolescents, it becomes a U-shaped curve where they get worse and worse at emotional granularity until they bottom out somewhere between 14, 15, 16 years old. And then they gradually get better into adulthood at emotional granularity again. So it's like this U-shaped curve. The thing that's interesting about it is as they unpacked what was happening, they realized that children experience and identify one emotion. That's why they are good at it. By the time they become teenagers, they begin to experience a whole range of emotions at the same time. You can feel more than one thing at the same time. And so as that complexity increases and they're feeling these coexisting emotions, 
They don't have the experience nor the vocabulary to name and label those. And so they get less good at emotional granularity, being able to name and label exactly what's going on inside of them. And then slowly as they enter adulthood, they practice and get better at what's actually going on inside. They can name it, they can label it. And so they have higher emotional granularity again. If I were to summarize it, I would say the principle would be that having more emotion words helps you to not only calm down, but also have better ideas for solving the problem that created the emotion in the first place. And the final piece of research that I want to share with you isn't actually an experiment again, but instead a whole area of research called interoception. There's a researcher named Lisa Feldman Barrett who wrote a book trying to make her research and her decades of research and the whole body of research that's also conducted by other researchers in her field. And the book is called How Emotions Are Made. Fascinating book. One of the things that's helped me from that book is the idea of interoception. Basically, we have five senses, right? We can smell, we can see, we can hear, we can taste, we can touch. There's also a sense that allows us to sense what's going on inside of our body. That sense is called interoception, just like perception, but it's being aware of what's inside our body, not perceiving what's outside of us. It can include things like being aware of our heart rate, our temperature, our hormones coursing through our body, our muscle tension, the constriction of our blood vessels. Those are all changes that are constantly happening throughout our body that we can actually sense. We can tell when things are changing. And that's how our body actually gets our attention with emotions is by changing our body. We feel it, we sense it as an emotion, and then we name it and give it a feeling name. Like, oh, this bodily sensation I'm having, that's nervousness. Oh, this bodily sensation I'm having, that's terror. Oh, this bodily sensation I'm having, that's energy to get me ready for what's about to happen. The interesting thing is, is that three different people can experience the same exact event as those three different emotions. If you're getting up in front of people to talk in a microphone, you could feel excitement, you could feel terror, and you could feel nervousness, depending on what you're doing up there and what your past experience has been. And so interoception and labeling emotions comes from a history of those experiences that you've had in the past, what they meant to you, what your parents called them, what you call them. We slowly learn what emotions are by experiencing them and then having others around us tell us what they are. The great thing is, is that because emotions are built, you can create your own new labels for what's going on with the emotions. That's why naming the emotion with emotional granularity is so powerful. It's not like you're saying, I am having a specific emotion that has a correct and incorrect name and I'm going to find it. It's not that at all. You're having a bodily sensation that you experience as emotion and you go, huh, I wonder what's going on here. I'm gonna get really curious and I'm gonna give this a label that's useful for me. You can decide that all of the emotions that happen before you speak in front of a large group are nervousness, or you can decide that they're anticipation 
of speaking. It all depends on the experience and the way you frame it for yourself. There are a lot of different principles based in the way reality is, the based in the way our lives work, and also based in research, which sets out to try to gain evidence for the way life works and the way things really are. There are a lot of different principles underlying and supporting the idea that reflective listening and naming the emotion are powerful, tiny superpowers. And if we can practice them and learn them and gain that skill, we'll be able to, in the moment, on the fly, know how to respond when someone else is upset, to know how to gain someone's trust who wants to share a problem with us. It's gonna take a little practice, it's new, it's gonna take some time to learn, but it's well worth the effort. Thanks for being here and taking a little time out of your busy life for personal development. I applaud you for that. We take change one step at a time. You're already on your way. You're already enough. You've got this. Have a great week and we'll see you for the next principle.